Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the connection and change that comes from really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the good stuff happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum, infused with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bone, and it is my greatest honor to be chief story steward around here. I combine my decade of experience working in the mental health field with my five plus years of sobriety to bring you candid conversations with spectacular guests, pulling back the curtain on what it really looks like to ditch the booze. We like to think that we're changing the way the world sees drinking one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Happy Friday, my friends. Anyone else have the weirdest week ever between having Tuesday off work, the most Monday, Wednesday, and then falling down the threads rabbit hole for the rest of the week? Uh, Yes, I'm on threads. Yes, Sober Stories is on threads. I cannot be held legally responsible for what's happening over there under my name. Um, I don't make the thread rules. The thread makes the thread rules. Uh, Anyway, come hang out with us over there. It's actually pretty cool. First order of business today, I've been working on something for you behind the scenes. She's almost ready. One thing you'll hear us talk a lot about in this space is community. The importance of being connected with other folks who get this alcohol thing, who know what you're going through. So we are building that for you as we speak. Uh, We've got a fun little wait list ready for you. So if you want to be the first to know when it goes live, head over to wearesoberstories.com slash community to stay in the know. I'm already working on some fun little perks for y'all if you get on the list. So you heard it here first, wearesoberstories.com slash community. Today's podcast is a fun one, so much so that we couldn't keep it down to one hour for you, but I think you will be glad we didn't rush. I interview Meg Fee of You Don't Have to Drink, and we get into it. I have to give you a little content warning on this episode. We discuss at length eating disorders and cannabis use. If either of those topics are unhelpful for you, please know that we always, always, always support skipping to the next episode. Take care of yourself, my friends. Meg is a great content creator and one of the folks behind my friends over at No Booze Crew. I like her candor and transparency around some of the more nuanced conversations, as you will see today, including being in recovery for eating disorders and more recently being over a hundred days cannabis free. We really got into it today and I hope you get as much out of the conversation as I did. And at the end, she mentions her podcast, More Than Sobriety, and y'all just need to know it's already live. (laughs) We recorded this a while ago, so it is live and you can get it wherever you get podcasts. It's great. After you get today's episode of Listen, tag us and Meg and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories crew, I am so excited to welcome in my sweet friend, Meg Fee of You Don't Have to Drink. Meg, welcome to Sober Stories. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Is your handle, you don't have to drink today or you don't have to drink? You don't have to drink. I love this idea and I feel like I post something like adjacent to this on like holidays. Like it's Thanksgiving, but you don't have to drink today. You you don't have to do it. It's not required because I think that that's just a really counterculture idea and I think you on a lot of those on your your page, which I'm excited to dig into. But let's start at the beginning. Tell us more about you and your story and how you became the person you are today and the way you share today. What is the story of Meg and alcohol? So big of a question, but I love it. Um, Like, whoa, hold on. So many thoughts. 
I always keep it super open-ended because I love every iteration that somebody brings on here. Sometimes they start at the very yeah. beginning of like, well, when I was in my mother's womb, <laughs> and then sometimes they start like like a year ago. I love it. And I think it's all valid. Yeah. And it's also like you mentioned who, who I am today. And I feel like I'm right now in this place where I'm still figuring out who I am, who I want to be. Like I say, like, I don't even, you know, I have younger siblings and I'm, I'm always like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. So don't worry. Like you have to. Who does? Yeah. Um, Who does? But kind of going back to what you, you know, that you don't have to drink handle. I think you might even remember, because I think we were connected before you don't have to drink became you don't have to drink. I had like six different account names before this. And this is the only one that's really stuck. And I, I, I kind of just, it, it was something that I said to myself. I woke up, this was a couple of years back. I was going wedding dress shopping with my mom and mm-hmm. my aunt. And I was on a good, I was on like, I was on a good streak with my alcohol free journey. I don't know how many days I was at that point, but I was already like, you know, I was already involved in the sober community on Instagram, hosting on 1000 hours dry, stuff like that. And I remember posting, I woke up and it just kind of came to me and I was like, I don't have to today because, Mm. you know, there's so many examples of this, but just shopping for your wedding dress is surprisingly something where you kind of feel like you have to drink too. Mm. I, I mean, even in the stores, when you're trying on the dresses, you get depending on where you go, they'll give you like a flute of champagne when you walk in and you're trying on your wedding dress. And I just remember, and it was the second time I had gone and I just remember trying to tell myself like, I don't have to, I did end up drinking that Mm. day. So it's kind of interesting to look back, Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, I kind of just wanted to respond to that part of your opening first, because it's like, it's kind of just become this mantra that I use over and over again. And still to this day, I'll say it to myself, like when I'm feeling pressured. Mm. But I guess going back, I won't go all the way back to the womb. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I, I've said this on a couple other podcasts, and I always kind of fear that I'm going to sound repetitive. But I grew up around alcohol a lot as a kid, Mm. and not in a traumatic way by Mm -hmm. any means. But I, you know, come from a big Irish American family, and we definitely kind of live up to our stereotypes (laughs) in many ways. I I married into one of those. (laughs) So you'll understand. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, I just didn't really think anything of it growing up. It was just the normal thing that adults did and kind of looked forward to doing that too and partaking in all of the partying because it was always fun. Like it was always a lot of, I think back to St. Patrick's Day's, you know, holidays Mm -hmm. because that was always like a big family reunion and just music Mm -hmm. and food and dancing and drinking. And so I kind of just thought it was just what you did and then started drinking in high school, like experimenting with beer and, and then it turned into like, I mean, I'm mortified looking back on how we drank in high school. We would just, I think I was sharing about Mm. this the other day. I had a memory of being at this party and we had a bottle of Svedka. I don't even know where we got it. Probably someone's parent, like stole it from someone's parents. (laughs) Gross. Gross. And we were just like chugging Svedka out of the bottle. And at the time I was on medication too. I was on um, Accutane Mm. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a serious one. Yeah. And didn't know that drinking would, Mm -hmm. I didn't know that drinking would be, I mean, it's negative in any, any capacity, but I didn't know that it would 
be so bad to mix the two. So I just remember blacking out being part of my Mm -hmm. experience from the get-go. And maybe that's because of the medication. You know, I thought maybe it was because of the medication, but now looking back, it's like blacking out was always kind of par for the course for me Yeah, and kind of runs in my family too. Now that I've kind of talked about it more and Mm. think about it more, a lot of the women in my family, they, you know, they black out when they drink. And it kind of, for me, never mattered how much I was drinking. Like even if it was only three drinks, I would still be missing parts of my memory. Mm. And again, just didn't really, I just kind of thought it was normal. And that continued into college. And I went to a big, big school out West and um, partied through college, freshman year, all of that. And that's when I always have to say like, that's when my disordered eating kind of began in college. Mm. And that's when the two you know, disordered eating and disordered drinking started colliding. And I mean, now this is like 10 years later, and I'm only just beginning to really truly recover from disordered eating because because of my removing of alcohol, like that's actually, Mm. it was, I didn't realize until now that it was preventing me from recovering from that as well. But yeah, I I guess, you know, after college, moved back to New York, I moved to New York City, I started working at an advertising agency, a creative agency, big drinking culture there, huge, Mm -hmm. fully stocked, you know, my I always mean to mention this and forget, but I, um, we had a whole bunch of different accounts at the agency. But my first role was working as Budweiser and Captain Morgan's social media manager. And I'm like, okay. 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 And I thought it was the coolest. Like I would brag about it. And, you know, I just thought I'm living the dream. And, you know, we'd go to, we'd go to their offices and we'd take the clients out to dinner and boozy, you know, events. And every week we had a thirsty Thursday happy hour at the agency. Uh And so it just kind of continued through my 20s. I think somewhere in my mid 20s, I, you know, I always kind of considered myself a drinker again, like that's kind of it was part of my kind of like identity in a way being a drinker. Mm. But I think in my mid 20s, maybe even before that, I'm kind of still trying to figure that out, like when I started being like, I think I have a problem. I think in my mid 20s, maybe 24, when I would drink, I would always kind of, I guess the situations that I would find myself in that I would put myself in started getting worse and worse in my mid 20s. Again, I was living on my own in New York City, working in a very pro drinking environment. And um, every time I would go out, it seemed like something bad would happen. And I, I don't want to jump to the worst examples, but even something something like losing my wallet. Yeah, losing my wallet was a big Falling one. Falling cabs, like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always lost my... And then my, you know, we would joke about it. Like my friends would joke about it and be like, don't lose your... Or I would leave like items of clothing behind at bars and like not uh-huh. care, stuff like that. And, and then, you know, there were two instances pretty close together where I woke up in the hospital after dr- after mm. drinking. Again, I was out with coworkers both of those nights. Even then, I didn't stop, which is kind of crazy mm. now to look back. I hid it from everybody. Like I didn't tell anybody the first time it happened. And then mm. the second time it happened, I got a 
hospital bill in the mail. It had to be like a month after the whole situation. And there was an ambulance, like the line item on the receipt was an ambulance fee. And I had like, when I tell you zero, zero recollection Mm. of being in an ambulance. And so that like scared the hell out of me. And I remember like opening it and just like his get going hysterical. And I was living with my dad at the time, or maybe I was just home with my dad um, over the summer, but like I couldn't hide that. Yeah, I, I would say that was a turning point maybe, but again, I didn't stop after that. Maybe a turning yeah. point in like, okay, I have a problem. This is really bad or I need to change something. Mm. But still the idea of being sober was not, not even in my realm of, not even in the realm of possibility for me. It just wasn't. I think COVID was really, um, you know, the pandemic is really what changed everything. Hmm. My drinking just got worse, you know, 2018, 2019, it just got worse and started to get sneaky, like hiding, sneaking drinks, just always wanting to drink no matter what. And I was working from home even before the pandemic. I was working from home three days a week. And um, Mm -hmm. I found myself, he's now my husband, but at the time, boyfriend, fiance, we lived together in a teeny tiny little apartment, like the size of my current living room. It was like 400 square feet, not even. (laughs) New York again. So I'd work from home and then I would like pop open a bottle of wine. It was always the red wine towards the end because something about it felt like... Wrapping up the day. Yeah. And just more acceptable in my mind. And so yeah, I'd pop open some wine and then he would, you know, I knew when he would get off work and oftentimes like I'd finish the whole bottle before he even left work and then would get another Mm. bottle when he was coming home and pretend like that was my first bottle. Sounds very familiar to me. Yeah. (laughs) I had a few episodes in 2019 that really scared me, really scared my, my husband, my friends, you know, he reached out to my friends. I think this was before the pandemic. He had reached out to my friends and just kind of a cry for help. Like, this is not good. Like, I'm going to go to her family. Mm. And, you know, that was like the biggest threat for me. It was like, no, like my family cannot find out. That's when I really started trying to change my habits. Or I guess, you know, looking back, it's when I tried to moderate the most. Like I was really putting a lot Mm. of effort into moderating. And it didn't work. (laughs) Never worked. Yeah, doesn't usually work. And, and yeah, and then COVID happened. I couldn't hide my drinking because we were in that teeny tiny apartment together. There was no hiding from, from my husband. And, um, he really helped me hold myself accountable. Yeah. I opened it. It sounds silly maybe, but I opened my Instagram account and it was going to be a health. Yeah. It was going to be like a health focused account. I was even, this even sounds sillier to me as like, I was going to go back to school to be a health coach. Mm -hmm. And it's just crazy because it's like how I was so unhealthy mentally and physically. But that is why I opened the Instagram account originally and ended up finding the whole sober space. Mm. Yeah, I'll stop rambling there. But that's kind of where that's kind of... (laughs) 
yeah, how it all came about. With the idea of the health Instagram account, I think that's interesting too, because I think that just makes me think of like my own eating disorder history. And it is like, we are health. We look like health from the outside. We can teach other people. I can, I could write a book and here I am still harming my body in the ways that I am. And that just like tickled some little old ED part of my brain that's like, yeah, no, I totally get that. I would have made that same account. I'd been like, I'm going to be yeah. a health coach. I'm going to learn everything about this. Because there was always this like desire in my heart of hearts to be the expert and like mask and hide what was going on inside. But I want to back up and touch on a couple of things because I wrote several notes and I think there are so many interesting parts of your story that you shared that first off we haven't talked about on the podcast here. And I think that the one that I really want to get into is, is this idea of eating disorders because As we know, the data tells us that there's actually a really strong connection and link between folks who struggle with eating disorders and folks who struggle with substance use disorder. There are also like other subsets of more compulsive behaviors in that as well, like shopping. I just got diagnosed with ADHD and I'm like, oh, my whole life makes sense. Mm, Yeah. But there's like a lot of a lot of overlap in these kind of spaces that I want to touch on. But I want to go back to the part about where you said that you were kind of blacking out from the beginning and just talk a little bit more about that because I think that that is something that not a lot of people understand that some, and and to preface it, like for those listening, we don't really know why or what happens when we black out. We don't know, like the scientists don't know precisely what it is that's happening there. Obviously it's not good, (laughs) but also I think there's some morality wrapped up in that. And like this idea of people who do or do not black out. And I was also a a person who would black out. Even with, I would drink quote unquote moderate amounts of alcohol, I would black out. So when you started having these conversations with the women in your family and realized this was something that they also experienced, what was that like? Because you also mentioned later that you didn't want your family to know. Yeah. So I, from the time I was a little girl, I remember my my mom, uh, my parents had me fairly young. Like they were in their twenties. They still went out like when I was when I was a kid um, Mm -hmm. they still went out and I remember hearing my mom talk about blacking out as a you know as a young woman when I was a little girl and I think Mm -hmm. that's why and I'm not mom if you listen because she does like to listen to like not blaming mom we love mom (laughs) But, yes, we love mom. But I did hear hear her and my aunts talk about it. Again, the same way that I talked about it with my friends, which was always in a joking, laughing matter, like, ha, 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 yeah. fill me in on what happened last night. Right. It was the same. It kind of like mirrored that. So I think I just kind of, I, I, I knew that, but it wasn't until I started reassessing my alcohol mm. habits, drinking habits that I, and therapy recently, like I'm talking over the last like three months, starting to dive into my childhood. And I, it just kind of mm. came back to me where I was like, oh my God, I remember sitting in my aunt's kitchen, you know, a night after my mom, and my aunts mm. had gone out and they were all talking about not remembering. Mm. So I kind of always knew, but but yeah, when it comes to my family, like not wanting them to find out about how bad my drinking had become, it was so tied to that, this image and reputation I had built in my family that I had my shit together. Mm-hmm. Megan is a good student, works hard, you know, just has, has her shit together. I was always kind of like an overachiever. Mm-hmm. And even in... Are you an oldest daughter by chance? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
I am. I am the oldest. Check of six. in a box of my theory. Yeah. Oh, 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 you're going to be like my primary test subject. I have a whole like in my brain, I have a dissertation about eldest daughters and drinking oh, problems. Yeah. Please. I would love to. It's, <laughs> it's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. So I just didn't, you know, it's always like setting, setting a positive example for my brothers and sisters. I'm just a perfectionist in every way. Anything that ruined that image was just not acceptable. So I just just couldn't. Yeah. I And I already had, you know, thinking I'm just kind of connecting the dots here. But in my during college, when I had first been diagnosed with an eating disorder, and I was really struggling throughout college, I think in my 20s, I didn't want to do that to my parents again. Mm. It kind of like broke them in many ways. And my grandmother, I remember being like so torn up about it. The fact that I was struggling Mm. so badly. I just had that shame still around that. And I think I didn't want my drinking to be another situation like that. Mm. I Mm. just literally think I realized that just now that maybe that was a big part of why I couldn't admit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that might be why. And I think that that really resonates in this idea of like, we don't have the ability or space to put one more thing in other people as the eldest daughters mm-hmm. overachievers. And and it's interesting too, how people can make things like that about them. And I mean that in a, like an incredibly loving way, because I've had that happen in my own life too, where it's like people in my life have felt responsible for my drinking, my mental health, things like that. And I'm like, in a way, yes, I believe all of this is related to our system, to our family of origin, to our environment. But also like, I have no no history of drinking in my family. Like there's no history of drinking problems in my family. Nobody gave that to me. I stumbled into that on my own accord with various factors that contributed to that. And it wasn't put on me. And there's still this sense of like some folks in my life have this guilt and like this feeling of like, well, I could have done better or I could have seen it or I should have caught it. And it's like, first off, it's not about you. (laughs) Like lovingly, lovingly. But also that being in some ways almost a barrier to you making a change in your life of like, I can't give them one more thing. I can't let this be a thing. So I'm just going to keep drinking. What was kind of that step into realizing that doing this for yourself and not worrying about putting one more thing on other people? What did that look like for you? Oh, that's a tough one. It's okay if you don't have an answer. No, I mean, it's a good question though. I Because something as you were talking, as you were kind of talking, me through that, I was thinking about how another another factor is just how normal, normalized drinking, binge drinking is and how mm. often and prevalent drinking is in my family unit. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm talking about like my my wider, like I have a huge yes. family and yeah. like every barbecue, birthday, whatever, like, you know, the first question is, what are you drinking? Or like, do you want anything to drink? Like, it's just yeah. how it is. And I kind of just felt like, and they being kind of my family would, would think that I'm unraveling a lot that I'm just like starting to think about here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just normal. Like, it's just normal. It's what we do. And that maybe I would be seen as like, oh, she's overreacting or she's, you know, a little dramatic, mm. but she doesn't really have a real problem. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing yes. contributed to it a little bit. But now I definitely get tons of support. It, like my immediate family, family, my parents, they, my 
brother, you know, the brother that's closest in age to me, because the other ones are pretty young still, they all know that I'm a hundred times better and healthier without alcohol. And realize that I think as I continued my sober curiosity as I stayed sober and they just kind of saw what came of me after that and could Mm. look back and be like, oh yeah, maybe she had a problem. But even still to this day, like there are, like, I don't really talk to my dad too much about it. I talked to my mom about it a lot, but yeah, at the time, maybe, maybe if I went to certain family members and said, you know, I think I have a real problem, their way of reassuring me and being there for me might have enabled me a little bit. Like it might have been like, Mm -hmm. you're good, you're fine, don't worry, maybe would have gotten the opposite reassurance and not in a, you know, way where they wanted to kind of like gaslight me or anything like that. But their way is just to be like, you're okay. Like, don't worry about it. You're okay. I never thought about it like that. And I think that happens to, that happens to a lot of people too, though. For a very long time, I had to convince people that, no, I, I definitely had a problem with drinking because mine was also very quiet. It was on the couch at home that the story you told about opening that bottle of wine and then pretending like your second bottle of wine was your first. I'm like, how many times did I do that? I would always buy the same bottle of wine. So it always looked like nobody could ever tell how what I was drinking and it always was the first bottle. Um, And you also said something about it being like, it felt more acceptable. And I think it is. It's totally acceptable to like this idea of like, oh, it's like 4.30, 5 o'clock. We're all working from home. We're just wrapping up some emails. Let's go ahead and crack open a bottle of wine. So, so much of my drinking was quiet. It wasn't in the open. And so a lot of people in my life weren't seeing it. But also this idea of just like believing people and believing people when they feel something is off in their own internal experience and paired with that, this idea of, I think a lot of us go into this questioning, like, is my drinking that bad? Or is this, this doesn't feel good, but nobody else thinks I have a problem or like everybody else does this or, you know, can really rationalize it in a lot of ways. And so when we are met with somebody who's like, no, you don't have a drinking problem. What are you talking about? You're fine. There's also this sense of like, oh, Maybe they're yeah. right. Maybe maybe I don't. And so I, I, in my own story, I really didn't tell people for like several years into it. I did like the longest sober October, quote unquote, because I didn't feel like I had the, uh, there are a lot of pieces why I didn't tell, but like there was also this piece of like, I, I just don't think people are going to believe me. And I don't have the energy to explain myself. I don't have the energy. And I also am afraid of like what it's going to do to my brain when somebody's like, no, you're fine. Because then my brain, my brain wanted like every excuse under the sun to be like you're yeah. fine because we definitely want it to be fine. We definitely wanted to keep drinking. No, but that's such a good point about you, you. Sorry, you just like it's such a good point to just to go back because it's like okay, yes, I probably would have probably would have gotten that reassurance or you know people saying like you don't you don't have a problem. At the same time, of course they didn't think. Of course they wouldn't think I had a problem because I went to like the lengths that I went to to prevent them from actually seeing how I was drinking, how much I was drinking. Totally. Like I I kept that secret so well. Um, and I wasn't going to tell, you know, I wasn't going to say like, I'm hiding bottles under my bathroom sink. Like I'm not going to like, you know, and that was, right. that, that was when I was at my very, very worst, you know, it's progressive. So it didn't start there, but I'm not, I wasn't going to tell them that. So of course they of course, they're going to tell me right. I don't have a problem. Yeah. I want to circle back to the part about perfectionism and overachieving and being an eldest daughter <laughs> and the the eating disorder thing. So 
if you don't mind me asking, can you tell us more about your experience with an eating disorder, what your histories look like, and how that relates specifically to the way you understand drinking your own sobriety and the way you talk about it now? Yeah, yeah, of course. Definitely, again, something that I'm still working on unraveling. And it's always tricky to talk about the timeline because my drinking journey, talking from 18 to 30, or let's say 32, which I'm turning this summer, like 18 to 32, (laughs) my drinking was on one path and my disordered eating was on another. And they intertwined in different Mm. ways throughout those years. But it started kind of the same way. My ED started the same way. I kind of say that my alcohol misuse started, which was like harmlessly. Mm. It started as I just, I gained some weight my first year of college after my first year of college. And that summer I wanted to go back to school with those pounds shed. The freshman 15. Exactly. It was the first time, like I'm a small person and in a weird way, that has always kind of been my identity as as well. Like I've always Mm. had this like, she's small but mighty, she's tiny but Mm -hmm. loud, like that whole thing. Feisty. Yeah. That Mm -hmm. is very much like always been my persona. It was the first time I'd ever kind of struggled with my weight or my body image. Like I Mm. never, I was lucky. Like I got through high school and middle school like unscathed in that way. So it like really got to me that summer. And that's the summer I first started kind of like researching, like looking up how to lose weight, Mm -hmm. thinking about calories. Like that is just something that I never Mm -hmm. even thought about before that point. And that summer I I went home back to New York and I would, I worked at this store up the block from my dad's house and I would go, the the store was next to a Dunkin' Donuts and I would, during the eight or nine hours I was at work, I would only allow myself to have a Dunkin' Donut iced tea, like unsweetened iced mm. tea. And then, so that was all day. That word allow. Yeah. Just like little, exactly. little, little <laughs> Then I would go, you know, I would feel so accomplished having not eaten anything the whole day, go home and have allow myself to eat dinner and whatever that was. And that was it. And I would like swim laps and I would, you know, I was really just trying to not eat as much as I could. I went back to school in August and I got a lot of like verbal reassurance from other girls and just continued from there. And I I am something that a memory that unlocked in my mind recently was how much Tumblr played a role in my inspiration to continue starving myself that year. They had like a huge inspiration, like pro. It was bad. Like the early, early 2000s girlies now. So I just, it just snowballed from there. And I actually wound up in the hospital that year during school. The doc, that was the first time like a doctor was like, you are underweight. And Hmm. I came back home for Thanksgiving. It was either Thanksgiving or winter break. And that was kind of like the first time my family, you know, you don't, they don't, nobody knows that there's an issue until it's visible externally. Like it's very easy to hide it up until that point. So 
Um, and I was so, I was struggling and there was no denying that. And my parents like didn't let me go back to school that, that next semester. And that's when I first entered kind of like outpatient treatment and long story short, gained some weight back and was healthy. You know, that's like, she's better mm. now. Mm-hmm. And that turned into binge eating because of course, wherever there's restriction, there's going to be binging. Yeah. Then it turned into purging. The purging continued for years. Um, The restriction, the binging, the purging, that cycle all continued for years, all while I was still, you know, in college and drinking. The only time I would kind of like not allow myself to, again, allow myself to drink was if I felt like I had consumed enough calories that day and I couldn't consume anymore. Mm -hmm. But it started, you know, intertwining with alcohol in the way that it's like, oh, don't chase your shots with juice, chase it with like Diet Coke or don't eat all day because we're going to consume our weight and calories later, you know, in drinking. So it started intertwining in those ways. Of course, I didn't realize that at the time. And then in my 20s, it just kind of, I I sort of, the way that I can really like explain it best is that I just kind of learned to live with it. I don't think my Mm -hmm. family knew that I was still struggling because I was always at like a reasonable, like all of these things are so like arbitrary, but like I was at a reasonable weight. Like I didn't look sick. So I was fine. She's using air quotes for those who can't see her. (laughs) And so I kind of like just learned to live with it and eventually stopped the purging cycle. And it just kind of, you know, it wasn't as severe anymore. And I would say probably the time when I, when maybe my disordered eating wasn't as severe was when my drinking became more severe. Mm, And I'm still, again, like still kind of working through all of that. But yeah, I, I would say in a weird way, this maybe is the first time I've articulated it this way, but I didn't have time to dedicate to my eating disorder the way I used to. Mm. Like when I was younger, I was busy. I was working nonstop and, you know, bandwidth. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't have the bandwidth for it, but drinking certainly had the bandwidth for that. And I don't know if that was even like a coherent explanation of it, but they've just overlapped in so many ways. Yeah. And I I thought it was really interesting to hear you speak about it in this kind of converging timeline, because I think the the theory I have in my brain, or I guess the entry point to this conversation I have in my brain is just that we know that they are really common co-occurring things when we have alcohol misuse or alcohol use disorder or disordered drinking, and we have eating disorders, disordered thinking about food, dis- restriction, binging, et cetera, et cetera. I, I want to go back and say, I said the freshman 15 tongue in cheek because it's all of these yeah. phrases that we have just been so indoctrinated into understanding like, oh, you got to watch out. You can't gain the freshman 15, much less the fact that we're still 18 years old and we're still children and we are still like our bodies are still developing. And I will never, no matter what I do, be the same weight I was when I was 18 because I was still a child. And I look at 18 year olds now and I'm like, that's a, that's a child that is still a developing human. And yet there's a part of my brain that's like, I was a size six in high school. I can do it again. (laughs) And it's, so I want to just, preface like my freshman 15 comment there. You know, it's 
so interesting to think about just the way we were talking about what we were putting in our bodies in the era that you and I were growing up in, those early 2000s. I I think I'm a couple years older than you. I learned a lot more about like, quote unquote, health that just made me unwell and made me much more conscious of my body image and not my actual wellness. Like I didn't learn how to take care of my nervous system. I learned not to drink because it was going to get me pregnant. And and so all of these shifting dynamics, I, I think that the youths of today are both in like a terrifying time, but also like a more enlightened time in some ways, because there's more conversation about this, but it was just so normal for us. So of course you had this overlapping relationship. And, and I was just on a girl's trip with one of my college best friends. And we were talking about like how we'd make like skinny drinks or like when I quit drinking towards the end of it, that I had stopped drinking wine and it was drinking like vodka, sparkling water, lemon juice things. Cause I was like, the wine's making me fat. Not the fact that I was incredibly depressed oh and yeah. drinking two bottles of, of alcohol two bottles of wine, one to two bottles of wine every night. It was specifically the calories in the wine that were making me fat. And I was more concerned about that than I was about my spirit and the fact that I was like dying inside emotionally. And I still very vividly remember that intentional shift to, I'm going to drink these like mixed drinks of nothing, of garbage so that I can save the calories. And I'm curious because I know you know a lot more about this than I do, but do we know why there seems to be so much similarity and overlap in folks who have struggles with substances and folks who have struggles with eating disorders? I mean, you're so right. And just again, unlocked so many memories because throughout my 20s, (laughs) during that time period where I was maybe turning to drinking to cope instead of turning to my disorder, you know, my ED to cope, which I'll Mm -hmm. go back to, but you know, and we kind of touched on it earlier too, which is like, it started as it started in college as don't, you know, the chase with diet Coke instead, or only drink, um, only drink vodka instead of beer Mm -hmm. because it's less calories. And then throughout my 20s, it Mm -hmm. was skinny girl, that skinny girl brand, Bethany. Yes. yes, Bethany Frankel. That brand, I would just find like the lowest calorie stuff I could. And then it kind of turned into that orthorexia, health obsessed, Mm -hmm. disordered eating where I would still be drinking alcohol, but I would order a skinny margarita or I would only drink organic wine or biodynamic wine because (laughs) I thought that that was somehow healthier or like the lowest calorie beers Mm. that I could find. I even at one point went gluten-free, I would only, I wouldn't drink beer anymore. I would only drink um, ciders. And then when I realized how much sugar Uh was in cider, then I had to switch Uh to the hard seltzers. And so, so much overlap in like the effort I put in to drink healthy alcohol, quote, you know, using air quotes Mm. again, because there's no such thing as healthy alcohol. But there's so many ways that diet culture is like ingrained in drinking culture as well. It is. And it's only getting worse. Honestly, the amount of something I I saw, which was really interesting the other day, which is that, yes, the non-alcoholic category is growing, but it hasn't made a dent on the alcohol category at all. Like the alcohol category, it's still growing as well. But the the diet culture infused alcohol marketing tactics Mm -hmm. are crazy. Mm -hmm. But I guess going back to your question. All the nootropics and like health. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Even like the hard kombucha. I was like, come on, GTs. Why are you doing this? Like, Just be a health drink. Uh, Topo Chico betraying me by doing a hard seltzer was like, oh, it just made me so, so sad. 
No, yes. not Spindrift. No. Yeah, they just came out with one too. Ugh, so disappointing. But going back to your question of the overlap, I don't know what the stats are crazy. And I think the other thing is I feel this is totally my hunch, but I feel like disordered eating and alcohol use disorders are both so underreported. Like there's so many people mm-hmm. who probably would qualify for having, you know, again, us millennial women, we I think all have fucked up relationships with our bodies. Oh, yeah. Mine's un- unreported. It's never been diagnosed. Yeah. I, it's been self-diagnosed. It's like very much real, but it's never been but reported. But even with – and even even knowing that, the statistics are staggering. The overlap is mm. just immense. And I don't know why – like in terms – from you know from a science perspective, from a scientific perspective, I don't know why, but I think going back to my realization that my issues with drinking and my issues with my body or my relationship with alcohol and my relationship with my weight or controlling my body size has mm. always – have always been – they started at the same time. They started when I was a teenager when I was a teenage girl. And so maybe that's why, because they, it starts at the same time. And then something I said before, which is it's a coping mechanism. Like they're both coping Mm -hmm. mechanisms. I think that might have something to do with it. Mm -hmm. My need to control what I look like, control my size. It, It sounds weird, but that is, that's a coping mechanism. And then alcohol was a way to cope with all of my anxiety and my stress and my depression. Yes. And it's, it's kind of like, which tool are you use? Which one are you using at this stage mm. of, of your life? And mm-hmm. that's why I think they've kind of like intertwined mm. in weird ways throughout my twenties. I just think we're only, I think you're spot on. I think that it, it makes a lot of sense to me that it is in the same or similar maladaptive coping mechanisms buckets. Uh, and I think back to mine, and I think when I think about it, it's really interesting to hear you talk about how yours intertwine and go up and down and are not necessarily consecutive or um, what's con- concurrent. They're not exactly together yeah. because I think that's been my history a lot too. And I had never really thought of it that way, but it's almost like when life is uncontrollable when I'm like in a lot of, or like something really traumatic has happened or things feel out of my control. That's when my eating disorder bullshit starts acting up. And then at the same time, like stress, overwhelm, fatigue, like that was when alcohol was my coping mechanism. So it's almost like they're not always, they weren't for me always the same triggers, the same stressors that created them as a coping mechanism. But, you know, I think, and I'll, and I'll do some research and put some, some, studies in the show notes of this to, to better answer for the audience because we don't know the, the scientific answer. But my my thought is too, like there's some like compulsion, dopamine circuitry in this too, because it's like the satisfaction I get when I step on the scale and my body is smaller. And again, we're going to put a big old general yeah. warning on this episode. So uh, no worries, everybody. <laughs> yeah. um, but like the satisfaction I get when my body is smaller on the scale, like that is a dopamine hit to me. And man, that feels so good. Just as the really massive spike of dopamine alcohol felt really good. And I'm learning so much too about my ADHD and also how those specific communities, EDs and AUD communities are also heavily intertwined with ADHD. And there's a dopamine deficiency in ADHD. And it's just like all of these interconnected, you know, I've got like OCD is somewhere in my my chart of it's like Charlie Day with the red twine and like the pictures. I'm like putting it together and there's like an eldest daughter pin somewhere in there. But I think the reality is, is, is these things are all intertwined and they're all related. And 
I go back to like resilience too. There's a piece of that in there of when we are in stress, how do we recover from that? And when we have lower resilience, then we rely on these more maladaptive coping mechanisms. And and there's just like so much in it. And then of course you put the social messaging and the images we see and the nootropics and wines. And I am so glad that I was, I quit drinking before the era of organic wine and hard seltzers. Hard seltzers would have done me in. I have no idea what they taste like. I've never, I never experienced those, but I just think about like, Ooh, that would have tickled my eating disorder drinking brain so beautifully because it was low calorie. And it was fizzy and you could just like drink them like water, drink them like a sparkling water all the time. And so I think that there's this really interesting overlap. And I really appreciate the way you speak more about this publicly. I know it's landed you in some <laughs> some controversial waters on Instagram <laughs> here and there, which is not the most fun not thing. Fun. Uh, the internet's the worst place in the world. But I really appreciate you sharing your experience with that because I know that is something that so many people in our audience, and like you said, this is incredibly underreported, but so many people are going to be able to listen to this and hear us say these phrases and connect some dots of oh, I have these pieces too. How do I start untangling this? And how do I start freeing self from... And and I will say this is an, uh, an eternal work in progress for me. I have a lot of unpacking there to do myself. Oh, yeah, but starting to even just like hear you say some things, I'm like, oh, yeah, that really resonates with me. And that's like unpacking this a little bit, opening up space to eventually get to a place where this feels more healed. Yeah. And you're at same. I mean, I'm definitely, like I said, I definitely am still unpacking all of this too. And all of these conversations help me too. But another thing I'll point out is when I, you just sparked this in, in my brain, but when I stopped drinking, I shared this on Dry Hard Pod, I think it was that episode, when I stopped drinking and it finally stuck for the first time, this was the summer of 2020, my ED lit up. And again, it's something that Mm. I thought I was kind of in recovery from. Like, I'm like, oh, I I can manage it. It was something that wasn't as severe anymore. You know, at the same time, looking back, I was still counting every single morsel, calorie, everything I put in my body, overcompensating Mm -hmm. with exercise, all of those behaviors. But again, I didn't have the time or the bandwidth to dedicate it to it fully. And once I stopped drinking, it only took me two weeks of consistently being sober from alcohol to notice, and I know because I have my journal still, to notice that my ED was like back. And that's the only way Mm. I could verbalize it. But I still have no, I still have a note on my phone from that summer that said, it was like, I feel great. You know, I was logging like how I felt without alcohol for two weeks and all of these positives that I was feeling from it. But I said, why am I, I hear all these thoughts in my head, like, why am I not losing weight yet? Why am I not eating healthier yet? Mm. Why am I struggling so hard? And then it clicked for me that it was back. And honestly, it never went away, Mm. but it just kind of turned it back on like that, whatever it was, whatever purpose it was serving, whatever, whatever it was doing, I 
I really started leaning back into a lot of my ED behaviors when I stopped drinking. And that's been, you know, Mm. it's been almost three years since that summer. But and I've come a long way since then with both that first year, I would say 2021 was the hardest year I've had since college since my ED first started, Mm. probably the hardest year I've had when it comes to my disorder of eating. And that's why I'm back in therapy now working on it because Mm. removing alcohol just for some reason, it lit that up. Yeah, that makes total sense to me, though. I think that that the answer is like root cause. What is the root cause of discomfort that we are utilizing all of these other coping mechanisms to address? And that's one of the things that I share a lot with the people that I work with. First, don't go into quitting drinking expecting to lose weight. I think that there's like inherently some diet culture stuff in there, but also like it just isn't everybody's reality. We think it is, but it's just not. I didn't lose weight. I gained weight after I quit drinking. Sugar, my body healing, probably some eating disorder stuff flaring up, whatever you want to say. Like I gained weight when I quit drinking. And so I'm I'm really frank about, especially if that's your motivation or your why for quitting too, it's also just not going to be compelling enough of a reason to continue staying alcohol-free when things get hard. I, I go back to this idea of when we quit drinking and we remove the substance from our lives and we remove this coping mechanism, there's a lot of empty space and there is a lot of bandwidth. There's a lot of emotional, energetic, mental capacity that's opened up. And if we are not intentional with what that is filled with, it will be filled with something else. So for you, it was more eating disorder tendencies. Sometimes for me, it's like, if I'm not paying attention, I will go scroll on TikTok for three hours, then I'll like find myself in yeah, depression. Like there are all these different- very well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a favorite yeah. of mine. We can do another I have episode to, like, have a, like- on social media addiction because yeah. that one's real. Yeah, totally. Totally. So real. As I like have so many people who file, oh. follow me on TikTok, I'm like, if y'all just even knew how long <laughs> I can binge a TikTok. Um, <sighs> but but it, but it's it. That is when I know too that I'm not actually addressing anything that's wrong. If I have removed a thing, or if I am leaning into my other maladaptive coping mechanisms, like overeating, like TikTok, like a uh, fucking Candy Crush, like <laughs> something stupid and inane. My phone is one yeah. of them. But if I'm leaning into that, like that just tells me that there's avoidance somewhere, and I'm not actually tickling the thing that's bothering me in the first place. And that is something, I mean, and I say that now as I can, I can see it, I can acknowledge when I'm doing those things and I still don't always have the immediate fix to it. I didn't even have the visibility of this five, 10 years ago to know that if I remove one maladaptive coping mechanism and immediately go to another, then it's just, it's just replacing the thing that's putting a bandaid yeah. on things. So I think that makes perfect sense to me that your eating disorder lit up after you quit yeah. And you are so right about that. It was dry hard pod because you said the same thing. I didn't even think of this during this conversation, Mm -hmm. but there is so much diet culture involved in the sober online space. There's so much emphasis on your glow up. Like even if we're not talking about weight, just like I'm going to have better hair, better skin, skin, better. Yeah. And I understand what you said, which is losing weight or wanting to be physically strong or fit is an entry point 
for a lot of people. I'm sure that that's an entry point into sobriety Mm -hmm. for many, many people. And that's valid. Like if you want to lose weight, great. If that's your mission and that's your reason for cutting back on drinking, like there's no bad reason for cutting back, but there is so much reinforcement in those online sobriety spaces around appearances that I'm worried that Mm -hmm. we're kind of making that overlap even worse. And maybe people who didn't struggle with food in their body are now struggling with food in their body because of all this discussion. It's a lot. One of my things that I say often is like when people are deep diving into sugar when they quit drinking is like a cookie is always better than a glass of wine. But I also put an asterisk with that too, because that is not a helpful thing for people with ED backgrounds, because that can also, like I work with clients all the time who are like, I feel just as bad as the way I do with food now as I did with drinking. And so it's it's like, how do we speak about this in a way that removes shame? Like it's okay to not lose weight when you quit drinking. It's okay if you actually probably gain weight or you eat a lot of sugar that you didn't know you used to, to crave. Like I'm, I'm working actively in my own coaching practice and the way I show up online to like find the right balance between saying like that is okay and that might happen and if it does it's perfectly normal and also understand like there are some of us that need that real heavy asterisk to a cookie is always better than a glass of wine because sometimes it can totally go in that direction too yeah yep that I feel like is an interesting segue if you are open to talking about it but one of the things that you have started to share a little bit more in your social media presence is that you are are now how many days cannabis free? 53. 53. And it'll be more by the time this episode comes out. And I thought about it too, when you, when you said, um, you know, replacing one coping mechanism for another, that's the perfect example for me personally. Um, another perfect example, I guess. And I guess first like big, big disclaimer asterisk. I don't want to, the reason that I've, it's been a little bit hard for me to find the words or find the like energy to share about cannabis and how I'm quitting it in the sober space or, you know, alcohol free online space is because I don't want to make anybody else feel bad for their recovery and how Mm -hmm. they choose to sustain their sobriety Mm -hmm. from alcohol or other drugs. Mm -hmm. And cannabis was a huge help for me. Like if I'm just going to be real about it, it was a massive help for me in my first three years, meaning Mm -hmm. 20, February 2020 to now, the whole yeah. whatever, you know, I haven't been completely sober that whole three years, just to make that clear. But that whole journey up until 53 days ago, or even a little bit before that, it was really, really helpful. It was especially in situations where, like I said, I have a big family, we get together a lot, a lot of people drinking (laughs) around me. My wedding is a perfect example. I had like almost 300 people at my wedding, open bar. I needed to rely. And even at my bridal shower, my, my rehearsal dinner, I did need some Something to help me take the edge off. And I also just believe that like, we don't have to be perfect. Like I'm addressing alcohol. That's Mm -hmm. always kind of been the focus of that, my page. And I never, at times I would feel like a hypocrite for not talking about it or be, or feel like a liar for Mm -hmm. not talking about it. But I kind of tried to separate the two because cannabis never... And I haven't even, sorry, I'm rambling. I haven't even gotten into like why I stopped. Cannabis has never made me light my life on fire the way that alcohol 
lit my life on fire. It never made me forget my purse. It never made me (laughs) do another type of drug that I wish I never did, which alcohol certainly Mm -hmm. did. It never made me send texts that I didn't remember sending or Mm -hmm. black out or feel that intense shame and destruction from alcohol. So cannabis is something that I've used on and off since same time, since I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I think the first time I tried smoking was, I must have been like 15. And Mm -hmm. like I said, on and off throughout my life, but most heavily in the last three years because I started really Mm -hmm. leaning into it as a way to ease my social anxiety when I was around a lot of alcohol, take the edge off. And just like, because I enjoyed it, to be totally honest, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think everybody has their vices. And again, I was trying not to shame myself or guilt myself about it because it wasn't causing destruction. And if anything, it was helping me stay sober from alcohol, which was the most important thing I needed to stay sober from. I actually, so I'm in New York and it is getting legalized recreationally, but at this point it's legal medically. And so there are like Mm -hmm. plenty of dispensaries around my area. And I got a medical card. Like I said, I just started kind of leaning into it more and it played its role it's for a while until mm-hmm. it didn't i think i'm still still unraveling i know 53 days is very early on but i started so what i guess i started noticing my relationship with, with cannabis was mirroring started to mirror my relationship mm-hmm. with alcohol in many ways right. one way a big way being, like I said, I've been focusing on my my recovery from ED, from disordered eating over the last several months. And quickly with my therapist identified that cannabis was messing with my hunger cues. I Mm. would Mm -hmm. smoke or use cannabis. You know, there's gummies, there's tinctures, there's everything these days. I would use cannabis at night primarily. I would wake up groggy and in the morning, I would immediately go for caffeine. I would need my coffee first thing in the morning to wake Mm. me up. And then what does the coffee do? It suppresses my appetite. And so I found Mm -hmm. myself in this cycle where I would go almost all Mm. day without eating. And I was like, I'm just not hungry. Well, I'm just not hungry because Mm. I just had so many cups of coffee. And of course, I'm not hungry Mm -hmm. because that's what coffee does for many people. And then at night, when I would allow myself to use cannabis, I would then be hungry. And of course, I'd be really hungry, like just gorging myself. And, you know, that reminded me of binge eating behavior. But really, again, like it was messing with my hunger cues. I couldn't tell when I was actually hungry, when I was actually full. And so that was one way. And then another way it started mirroring my relationship with drinking is that, I mean, I'll list off a few ways. I, my tolerance got higher and higher. (laughs) I couldn't moderate it after a while, you know, I started out being Mm. able to moderate it, but then all of a sudden I was using it every day more than I would like to admit. I was lying to myself like I did with alcohol, lying Mm. to myself about how much I was using it. I was throwing away my hard-earned money at those medical dispensaries. They are not (laughs) cheap. I'm like, you know, I just started realizing that I, you know, all of the ways that I would call out and say like, this is what I used to do with booze. I was doing it with cannabis too. And even found myself towards the end, like recently, I felt like I needed it 
at all times, Mm. like wherever I would go, you know, the same way I did with drinking where I'd be like, oh, I'm going to brunch. Like I need to have my THC pen or I need to bring gummies. Yeah. Oh, I'm going on vacation. Like how am I going to sneak these gummies onto the plane? Like these Mm. addictive behaviors. And I was so able to rationalize them because I was like, it's medical. Like this is medicine. Mm -hmm. It's not medicine if you're abusing it. And I definitely was, I think there, I could think of more examples, but just so many ways that it started to mirror. The final reason, I guess, is like me and my husband are family planning. We want to have a baby. That was <laughs> my, that has been, I think I'll say instead, that has been what I'm holding on to and what's really helping me when I'm craving it. Or when I want it, you know, saying, no, I, I'm trying for a baby. I, I can't. And in a way mm. that makes me upset for myself because why can't I just do it for myself? But doing it mm. for a baby is easier than doing it for myself. And that's fine for now. I'm just going to ride with it. But yeah. Same with alcohol. Yeah, true. And just like with alcohol, the more, the further along I get, in this experience of not using it, the more confident I feel in my decision and my need to not use it in my ability to not use it anymore. And I did, I'll say like, I just didn't go cold turkey one day. I did try, like there was, Mm -hmm. there was a point where I tried, I was like, let me just see how long I can go. And I went 10 days and that was a huge deal. And another similarity with alcohol is try stopping. Like I always say to people, just try stopping. Like you think you don't have a problem? Just try stopping and see how it goes. I was miserable, could not regulate my emotions, Mm. was having night sweats, headache. And I was like, oh shit. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is a problem that I need to address. Mm -hmm. And so here I am. Here you are. That's that whole journey. (laughs) I really appreciate you talking about this because I think that this is something that is not, like you said, it's a really nuanced conversation. And I think that there's also like a level of secrecy around this as well, because uh, of course it's not federally legal. Yeah. (laughs) Here's the part where I'll say, I'll like, uh, TBD, whether this stays in the podcast or not, but I live in a state where it's not legal and sometimes use cannabis recreationally. And it wasn't something that I would even go anywhere near for several years into sobriety because my goalpost when I quit drinking is I will not fuck with anything that puts me in an altered state. That was my goalpost at the time. And it was a very necessary goalpost for me for a very long time. And then I started to get curious about if that goalpost could move in any sort of way and what that might look like. Have tried it in a couple different settings and scenarios. And I see the I see the opening for it to become just like alcohol for me because of the just like the coping like the the way of like oh man my body just really loves feeling the turn off like I love just shutting yep. off I love turning down the noise I love making everything go away so I I see a lot of openings there so like really when the doctor asks you <laughs> if you use cannabis I like I need the checkbox that's like once a year at ACL yeah. Fest <laughs> because that's that's about where yeah. I am right now and again TBD if this stays in the podcast because it, it ain't legal here I forgot I forgot it wasn't legal there yeah <laughs> uh don't, don't come for me Greg Abbott but but I think that this is a really important conversation because you are 
1000% correct in the fact that it can often be a tool for people to remove alcohol from their lives. And uh, fundamentally, I am a harm reductionist. That is that is my stance on substance use. I am fully abstinent from alcohol myself because there's, as you said earlier, there's no version of moderation. I also don't think it exists. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different conversation we can do a whole <laughs> yeah. other podcast on. Fundamentally, I'm a harm reductionist. And so if switching from ETOH, alcohol, ethanol to cannabis is something that helps you off board from the alcohol and cope, what we know about it, 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 it is just like you said, it is much less likely to ruin lives the way that alcohol does. The physical harm to it, the life harm to it, the there are some more legal implications in certain states, but but on the whole, like there are less DUIs, like all, all the stats tell us that the harm quotient, whatever, if we could aggregate all of these things together is lower with cannabis, marijuana than it is with alcohol. But we're also, we also as kind of uh, theoretically have always said that marijuana is not addictive. And I think we're starting to understand as you have really outlined for us, like that really ain't the case. Yeah. So there's also this piece of this, like, first off, we don't have a lot of research on it. It's just now being researched in more spaces and we're getting more big research projects, long-term research projects, so we're better understanding it. But also, I think the piece of it being, how do I want to put this, like, maybe less physically addictive, but also the way we use things as a coping mechanism can be also highly, highly addictive. That internal thought process of like, I need something to get outside of myself is just as intense in a lot of ways. And especially as we're removing a thing as the physical symptoms of fatigue, withdrawal, whatever we you might find. So even just this idea of like, I need it when I go to brunch or I need it to calm down or man, it's five o'clock. I can close my laptop and like chill out. There's still that piece of it to, to people. So I'm curious. Well, first off, how do you feel? 58 days. Yeah. I had so many thoughts on what you just said. <laughs> I talk a lot no. and then I'm like, let me ask you one very small, simple no, question. No, <laughs> I you're 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 so right. I think one of the things that you said is how there's this widespread belief that people feel very, very strongly that you cannot get addicted to weed, to THC. And Mm -hmm. it's absolutely false. You know, that's something that I've said in the past that I've believed in the past. And that's, again, never ever to shame anybody for their their use of it. But it's just false. And you can look up Mm -hmm. the research, like we all have access to the internet, and you can look it up. I was afraid to look up the research for a very long time. I didn't want to look under the rug because in the back of my mind, like I knew, I knew what I knew and just didn't Mm want to, didn't want to be as aware of it. But if you do look it up, I I think I'll say I can recommend two podcasts that I listen to. One being Andrew Huberman has an episode all about marijuana, THC, and and it was terrifying. And I don't even think that... (laughs) His alcohol one's pretty terrifying too, if anybody's not listened to that one. Yeah. (laughs) I had a lot of people in my inbox after they listened to that podcast and they're like, hey, I listened to the Huberman lab and I think I'm ready to quit drinking. I'm like... I don't even think I listened to the entire thing. I was like, like so mad about it. But that is one. And then Ruby Warrington, it's an older episode, but she had on his name is Brandon. 
I don't know his last name. I'll share it. I'll send it to you. But that is... Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. He was talking about like the episode is called... I think the episode is called Marijuana and Me. And he talks about... Anyway, his experience with it. And those were the two that got my wheels turning. But it is addictive. And I will say when I was experiencing those night sweats that... Hmm are just starting to calm down at day 53. Mm. I thought that there was something hormonally wrong with me. I Mm. started convincing myself that I had cancer. Like I thought it was so bad. I guess that's my point that I went to the doctor. I got a blood panel, like a standard blood panel. And then I got a hormone panel because I was like, it has to be my hormones. Got a night sweat sucks so bad. Gross. And I talked (laughs) to my doctor about it and I was out. I was like very open with her about my use of medical marijuana. And she did some research and she called me and she was like, there's nothing wrong with your hormones. There's nothing wrong. Like everything Mm. is normal. She's like, you're going through cannabis withdrawal. And she like sent me all this, all this research on it. So that's just like one thing I wanted to say is that it, it is real. But again, going back to what you said, just like with alcohol, like I'm a harm reductionist too, fully firmly believe in that. And if it works for you, like I, I, I know that there mm-hmm. are people who can drink normally, who can drink moderately. And just like I say with that, it's like my sobriety yeah, totally. is not a judgment call on you. Mm. I don't have a problem with you drinking or you using cannabis if it works for you. Like if it doesn't hurt you, if it mm-hmm. doesn't harm you mentally, physically, great. Mm-hmm. Keep doing it. If it works for you, great. But the few times that I have spoken about cannabis on my page and, you know, like my questioning, should I stop using it? I do get people the same way that people start to over explain their alcohol use. I get people over explaining mm-hmm. their cannabis use to me. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. I don't want it. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and like, cool. Like, that's fine. If you can use it, great. Like, I'm not. Yeah trying to, I'm not anti-cannabis. I'm not anti-alcohol. I mean, I am kind of anti-alcohol, but I'm not anti anybody using something that works for them and that doesn't ruin their life. Your original question, I feel great. I really do. Like I I can't lie. There have been several evenings, especially the past couple of weeks have been rough at work for me and just high stress. I've wanted to use it because I know it's that instant gratification, that instant turn my brain off. I have, I'm like you. We love turning those brains off. I just want to turn it off, (laughs) shut it up. So much noise. And I know it does that. So I'm not going to sit here and say like, I'm never going to sit here and say, I'm like never going to use it again. I can't say that. I feel like a fog has lifted. I'm starting to be hungry again, like truly understand my Mm. hunger. And for me, like in my personal journey, that's huge. It's everything like eating, being able to eat three full meals and snacks every day. It sounds silly to some people, Mm. but like, that's my goal right now in therapy and removing cannabis has allowed Mm. me to do that. I feel really good um, right now. Yeah, I feel, I feel good. And I'm excited to see my doctor said, that the 90 day mark is like when you know it's fully out. Yeah, out of your system. Yeah. I mean, I, I know even from alcohol, like those first seven months, eight mm. months were brutal. Like I felt awful. So mm-hmm. I know it takes time. And again, it's something that I've been using on and off since I was a child, like a literal child. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the thing that you said about, sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. the thing you said about if you can use it and it doesn't hurt you, then by all means. And the next 
thing that I would add to that is like, and also believe yourself. If you feel like maybe it is hurting you and you feel like it's not actually working for you, you can trust that your lived experience is valid and that somebody, dickhead Timmy in the comments who's saying, well, it works for me, doesn't invalidate your lived experience of the way it is showing up in your life. And I think like that has been a theme that I've been coming back to a lot lately. It's like, you can believe yourself. You can believe your lived experience. And if it's not hurting you, if it doesn't do anything, then fine. But if it is harming you in some way, if it is impacting your mental health, if it is impacting your work, if it's impacting your relationships, if it's harming you in some various way, you can believe that. And I really appreciate you sharing this story because there are going to be be people who listen to this podcast and be like, I had no idea that you could get addicted to it, either mentally, physically, or otherwise. Like, oh, I thought it was fine. I thought it was safe, quote unquote safe. And and I think the answer is like, no substance of use is, is fully 100% safe. But somebody is going to be hearing this and then say, oh, I thought this was supposed to be okay. I thought it was supposed to be something that might help me. And then I've started noticing it showing up in my life in certain ways that make me feel uncomfortable. Meg said that happened to her too. So maybe I have the opportunity to look at that more, more curiously. And like you said, like who's to say what happens 90 more days from from now, whether or not that is still your path. I think that you are always going to forever now be on the path of being curious about it and curious about the way it shows up rather than just defaulting to it or using it mindlessly. And and that may change. And and I'd be interested to see like the data and the information on how it looks when people reincorporate it. Cause I don't know if it acts the same as alcohol. I like truly have no idea on a mechanical level how that works. So we don't, we don't share any of this with any predetermined outcomes, but I think it's really important to talk about because we are seeing more people talk about it in the alcohol-free space. I think it's wonderful that we're starting to step into harm reduction. I think it's wonderful that we're starting to step into more acceptance around various types of sobriety that work for people. And as more people start to get curious about whether or not this is something that they can incorporate in their lives, I think it's really important to have both sides. Yeah. Thank you for saying all that. And I think you just sparked, you believe yourself, be honest with yourself, because I think we lie to Mm. ourselves a lot. I know I have. Mm -hmm. And also you can change your mind. Like I am so done with being, with there not being, like you said earlier, like nuance and gray area in these discussions. Mm -hmm. Like two things can be true. I used cannabis to help me quit drinking. And now I'm quitting it because it's not serving me any longer. Mm. And that doesn't mean I'm suddenly, (laughs) and it doesn't mean I'm suddenly like, you know, people want to label, people want to put you in a bucket, no yes. matter what we're talking about. People just like, that's what our brain yes. is like to like, people are in certain buckets. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it doesn't mean that I am now this purist, like, you know, there's many people who are yeah. sober, like, you know, hardcore, stone cold, sober, anything that alters your mind, like even CBD or whatever. And I'm mm-hmm. not like, I'm very much, like you said, a harm reductionist and also everything alter like birth control. Like, I'm on- <laughs> I literally just had, I had that thought in my brain yeah. too, of like abstinence only education, which is what we teach here in the good old yeah. state of Texas. It's like, that shit doesn't work. Right. So. <laughs> and it's just like, no, we can believe different things. We can believe different things to be true for different people and different situations. And yeah. like, not everything is so black and white. And so, yeah, I think like what I keep coming back to, like you said, is 
believe yourself. And what I keep coming back to is like, you can change your mind. You don't have to be the same exact mm-hmm. person the entire time that you're alive. Like yeah. you can, you can change. Your goalposts can move. Exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Well, we're like way over I'm time. I'm sorry. I keep looking at the clock. <laughs> I'm can, like, oh no. No, this is, this is my fault too. I'm good. I had a free, totally empty same, rest of the day. Day. But I always ask the same question at the end of every podcast, and I did not give you heads up on this, so I do apologize. But I should know this because I've listened to so many episodes, and now I'm like panicking. <laughs> What's the question? <laughs> if your story were to be oh, written, yes. the story of you and alcohol, ED, cannabis, any of it, it, it doesn't matter what it is. If the story of you and these things or a thing were to be written, what would it be called and why? I am going to go with what I have just named my podcast that hasn't launched yet. I think it would be called More Than Sobriety because yes. the reason I've, I've named, I've landed on that name for the podcast and not the very obvious you don't have to drink podcast, <laughs> which could have mm-hmm. been, a, was going to be a thing. Um, and I changed my mind is because like we've been talking about here, it's about so much more than just being sober and not drinking. There is mm. so much wrapped up in my personal sobriety that I'm still figuring out. My story, mm-hmm. my personal story, my my autobiography would be about way more than just <laughs> sobriety, even though my image <sighs> online may look like all I care about and all I think about and all I live and breathe and do is, mm-hmm. is not drinking. But I am way more than that. And... So I would call it more than sobriety. I love that. I cannot wait for the podcast. I'm so excited. Um, Thank you. You'll have to give us all of the details for that yes. because this is obviously going to be published later. So we might have something that we can link out to. And if not, y'all just have to follow Meg. But also that reminded me of something. I've seen a lot of people leaving the sober space online lately. Have you noticed yes. that? Of people being like, I feel complete yeah. here. I've like, this has been my identity for a couple of years and I feel like I'm ready to move on and be more than yeah. sobriety. And I think that's fascinating and really cool. And I'm so happy for the people that are stepping into the next version of their life that is more than sobriety. But I think I think you're right on. I think this was for me the gateway of like I had to get sober and I had to quit drinking for everything else to come. But there have been so many other things that have come from sobriety and that I am as a person that are now part of who I am that I love that. And I can't wait to listen to your podcast. I, not to put you on the spot, but would love to have you on it. I am (laughs) talking about a lot of the focus is going to be on sober entrepreneurs and Mm alcohol-free, zero-proof businesses, because I think that the Mm -hmm. industry, like... The ch- I'm a marketer yes. first and foremost. Like that's I'm a branding expert. Like that's what I do for work, and I love. I'm so fascinated by like the boom of all of these businesses now, and I just want to kind of like uplift all of these sober entrepreneurs. And I know that you are doing your trips now and your retreats and everything that you do. So I would love. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the little free plug yes, in there. Of course. <laughs> I'm I'm with you. I think that's a really cool niche. Um, I, We should talk offline because yeah. I've got some ideas about awesome. uh, that space here. But if our community can wants to connect with you right now, how do they find you? Where are you? What's going on in your world? Um, obviously, podcast coming soon. But yeah. if they are looking to connect with you, where are you? Yes, you can find me at you don't have to drink on Instagram. I have the Twitter handle or the uh, not the Twitter handle, the TikTok handle, but I know my brain and I'm not going there. So I'm just, 
<laughs> I'm just on Instagram. Girl, TikTok <laughs> is the wild west. I'm like, I've been building an Instagram profile platform for years and I'm at like like a steady hard 7K. I'm at, I've been on TikTok for like six months and I have like 30,000 followers. I'm like- It's so scary. It's honestly <laughs> very scary. Yeah. It's very scary. No, I'm not ready for that. Like people who go from zero, like, no, no I'm good. But you can find me there. You don't have to drink on Instagram and also at more than sobriety on Instagram is where you can find all things podcast related. There's nothing there now, but in the future there will be. So exciting. I don't think I follow that. I'm going to go follow that right now. That is very, very exciting. All right, my friend, this has been wonderful. Thank you for all of your stories, not just the alcohol one, for talking to us about this cannabis piece and the eating disorder piece. I think that there's so many pieces to this that are just going to be critical for people's journeys. And that is also what I really appreciate you in in the way you share on this online space. It's it's so real and it's multifaceted and it it touches things that people don't always want to talk about. So I just really appreciate the way you share. Also, it makes total sense that you're a brand designer. Your brand is beautiful. (laughs) This is all making sense to me. But thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And it was so nice finally meeting you one-on-one. Finally. Yes. So crazy that we haven't yet. Yeah. Thank (laughs) you again. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Meg Fee. Re-listening to this conversation while editing got my wheels spinning all about the ways our things, like the things we have, are interconnected. I hope you gained something from this nuanced conversation as well. And I don't know, I hope we sparked some new thoughts for you. Don't forget to hop on our community waitlist by heading over to wearesoberstories.com slash community. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories and change more lives one killer review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you share with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your biggest takeaways. And hey, you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Callie Williams and Zach Kiniston on editing. They also have their very own podcast, Switchcraft, Battling a Bulky Backlog, where they play over 180 Nintendo Switch titles. Check them out. Daniela Marty for our graphic design and every single person who has a hand in what we're building. Until next week, my friends. Bye.